Good morning, Memphis. Thanks again for joining me on another beautiful Saturday morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee or reheat it and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So, you know, last weekend we had this, you know, gorgeous weather here in Memphis. And if you are listening from Memphis, you know, there is this short, short window of nice weather where it's not literally 100 degrees with all of the humidity and the mosquitoes. And so I had to be outside all last weekend and thinking about that same thing this weekend. But wherever you may live, you're probably experiencing this extreme weather, erratic weather, unpredictability of plants and flowers blooming. And all of this is related to climate change, which you're probably kind of familiar with this idea of climate change. Um, But there are other ways that we could think about all these extreme weather changes. Um, And in particular, I'm thinking about how climate change relates to social justice, environmental justice, and of course, inequality. So joining me today is an expert on these issues of sustainability and climate justice, Dr. Julius McGee. Dr. Julius McGee is an assistant professor at Portland State University in the Toulon School of Urban Studies and Planning and Black Studies. His scholarship focuses on the relationship between social inequality and climate change, and he has also published on topics related to organic farming, renewable energy, global urban development, and transportation. His most recent work explores how mass incarceration contributes to climate change. Welcome, Dr. Julius McGee. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us talking about this important topic that is impacting all of us, whether we know it or not, whether we believe in it or not. (laughs) So first, I just want to know, how did you um, or what led you to pursue this topic of research? Yeah, so it kind of starts when I, in in undergrad, I went to Humboldt State University, which like if I was going to tell you the actual story of my life, which in and of itself was on a limb, like on a whim, I didn't actually go because I, I even thought I would go to college until my senior year of high school. There I found myself at Humboldt State, which is a super white uh, city in Northern California. Um, and I found myself sort of surrounded by a lot of, you know, sustainable consumption. So a lot, like I learned about organic farming, for example, in Humboldt, even though it was around me in Sacramento where I grew up, I really didn't pay attention to those things. Um, you know, and it's sort of its own kind of commodity culture out there in Humboldt County where, you know, people sort of, you know, like will have power based on how much, how well they consume, right? So do you consume a lot of green goods? And something always sort of rubbed me the wrong way about that. Um, and the sense that just like the lack of knowledge, you know, I would, you know, the, the typical food habits, the eating habits that I had prior uh, to coming there were actively criticized. And, you know, that to me had some racist undertones where I'd be like, okay, like, but like, I didn't know these things. Like people get on me for wanting to eat off a of paper plates, all these things. Um, and I also found myself on a whim taking a sociology class 
which because I didn't even know what the word sociology meant. Uh, and I had a great professor uh, named Steve Stamness who like just blew my mind for the first time in terms of what sociology was, the idea that there's a science of society. Um, and then not only that, but I actually had a knack for this science of society. I was like, I felt impassioned by it. Anyway, that's probably a lot more than you're asking, but long story short, I get into the sociology department and then I come across another mentor of mine, uh, Tony Stavaggio. And you know, I really looked up to him as an instructor. He's the one that introduced me to the concept of environmental sociology and all this, these critical ideas around it. And I sort of just asked him what he did, how I wanted to be like him. So I was like, how do I be you? Uh, and he went to the University of Oregon and got his PhD. And here he was lecturing at Humboldt State. And I was like, okay, well, I think I want to do that too. Uh, so I, I, you know, sci I you know, applied to get into the PhD program. A couple of weeks before applying, I decided I should go out there if I'm going to move potentially to Eugene, Oregon. So a few buddies of uh, mine and, and me went over to Eugene. I met my mentor and really good friend, Richard York who was doing like him and I are sort of kindred spirits, like very critical of sustainability at the time. And it really was good timing. We met when he was writing this paper that he published uh, that, looked, that looked at how renewable or alternative forms of energy that aren't fossil fuels don't actually reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions as much as you would think, or particularly that they don't reduce fossil fuels, right? Um, and that got me thinking about all this stuff around organic farming and all this sustainability stuff I had been dealing with over at uh, Humboldt State. And so I found myself learning from him, learning how he went about approaching his research, the, you know, advanced econometrics he was doing and all the statistics and then the theories he was using. So I spent the next five years of my life sort of learning from him, learning what he did, and then applying it to the questions that were really fascinating to me, which first were initially were organic farming, but always, which has always been the sort of case for me, is exploring my own experience as a Black man in the world. So looking at anti-Blackness, I realized later that you know, looking at organic farming in the way that I did was really about understanding why it is that I felt uncomfortable about a phenomenon that seemed to not be related to me, but clearly I felt a lot of antagonism from folks that really embodied that. So anyway, that's how I got into it. <laughs> I love it. I love how, you know, some of these you know, ideas that we end up really pursuing happen so kind of like out of the blue, right? Like mm -hmm. on these just kind of random connections that are happening. But I felt you so much when you're talking about kind of like food shaming, really, which is what I heard in a lot of that um, talk about like the organic farming and like, why don't you do this or support this? Or why are you eating like that? Um, I feel so much of that on these food choices when I went to graduate school and it was, you know, hummus. That was the first time I had ever had hummus. <laughs> but, and yeah. it felt, you know, like just different foods where it's kind of like, well, why don't you eat these, you know, foods of the intellectuals? And I'm like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know you could, you know, chickpeas. Who knew? Um, <laughs> so yeah. I love this idea. Hold on. But I want to ask you, even though I know you mentioned you started with kind of this question around organic farming, I want to talk about this just a little bit, because I feel like there is a little bit of snobbery, uh, but also a little bit of like people feel like, oh, organic is where it's at. And like, I'm really doing something good for the environment and also good for my body um, when I buy organic foods. Um, but I'm hearing you and it seems to be like, this is not the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So could you tell me more about what are we misunderstanding or not thinking about when it comes to just this idea of like, yes, organic is good, kind of the end. Yeah, so it's what really, 
that kind of led to that specific question um, was, you know, I, I found myself at farmers markets and, um, you know, buying organic food. And the way I'd come to understand it initially was, you know, that, okay, like, you know, it's about relationships between farmers and all these things. And then I found myself learning that, you know, Safeway had organic food and so did all these big grocery stores. Um, and that coupled with, you know, the, the expansive culture of cons consuming organic goods where, you know, in Humboldt, you had some people that would be upset with you if you gave them non-organic blueberries um, because they, and it, and it wasn't even, you know, there was, there was the, there was the explicit sort of health undertones that were, that rubbed me the wrong way as well um, for different reasons uh, that are related to eating disorders and things like that. But then there is this like, you know, sort of holier than thou, like, because this is the wave of the future that we all need to eat organic food uh, eventually. And this is how we need to like consume our, consume food in the future. And I was down with that. Like I thought, okay, yeah, we do need to change the way we eat. We need to change the way we relate to each other. We need to change how we relate to agriculture, moving away from big ag. But then here I find organic farming, you know, sort of doing big ag stuff. Um, like, you know, people call it like the conventionalized version of the organic market. Um, so I, you know, I decided that I would kind of test that, test the assumptions embedded in that and say, okay, well, you know, if organic farming is sort of touted uh, as an environmentally sustainable alternative, and it's the wave of the future, which is where we're going, you know, we should be able to identify, at least up until now, some substantial like impact that it has on climate change, right? So a lot of the ways in which organic farming was touted as a sustainable alternative had to do with climate change in terms of like, um, you know, carbon sequestration in the soil, right? Organic farming is good for the soil, so it increases the um, so it increases the ability for, you know, uh, the so, um, for vegetation to consume carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, right? It's also really good at reducing uh, other forms of pollution, like water pollution, but also, you know, a lot of the, a lot of conventional agriculture relies a lot on uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers, which takes the extreme amount of fossil fuels to produce, and it also results in the emission of nitrous oxide, not to mention, you know, the livestock we eat, you know, uh, adds methane in the atmosphere. All of these things I'm mentioning are what are called greenhouse gases, right? They get stuck in the atmosphere, they create global warming, that's where the greenhouse effect comes from. So my question was, well, organic farming isn't void of contributing to climate change, like in these same ways, it just is identified as a better alternative. But the real question is, is it implemented in such a way that it actually counteracts these, the majority of these conventional practices? And so I did that by applying a statistical model that assessed the degree to which increases in organic agricultural land actually reduce carbon, I mean, not carbon dioxide emissions, greenhouse gas emissions specifically from agriculture. I was expecting not to find anything. And I was expecting just to be like, okay, see, moot point. There's no relationship because it's too small or something like that. But I actually found that it increased these. And if you think about it, it makes sense. It increases greenhouse gas emissions. And it does, it makes a lot of sense because you know it grows alongside the conventional market. It's not truly a counter force. It's really a reaction to the conventional market. And in that sense, it has a symbiotic relationship to conventional ag, uh, that it grows in the same, through the same pathways that conventional ag set itself up. And so that's why I was able to sort of start to see, okay, well, if that's the case with climate change, what about when we look at water pollution, right? Similarly, if we look at how these, these markets relate to one another, they're kind of inter interconnected. And so I asked another question about water pollution, similarly found that it increases it. And like, the, you know, the simple answer to that is because, you know, these are both capitalist markets that are ever growing and they're not retracting. And so even if we have, you know, one competing market with another one, they're both growing. So it doesn't really matter uh, if one is a better, a more sustainable alternative, if it can't actively counteract the mechanisms that contribute to growth. So like contribute each of them growing. 
Mm, yes. I mean, even there, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's like blowing my mind because we have these like, I feel like really great kind of like advertising around organics, right? So I think it's pretty deeply embedded in us that organic farming is good. It's good for the environment and it makes us feel good to participate in something that we think is like helping the planet. Um, but in fact, we're not. <laughs> So great for, you know, busting that myth and <laughs> helping us maybe think through, um, you know, again, just in this one area of our life where we are maybe even contributing to the continued climate change, you know, of our planet. Um, and I think it's important, too, to think about organic farming, or organic foods that, again, we get from these big box real retailers, from those chain grocery stores versus the way we might think about organic farming, you know, via our local farmers market um, in the relationship mm -hmm. those farmers have with the land and the foods that we're getting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reality is, is that, like, you know, some of those farmers markets aren't, aren't available everywhere. So, you know, I, where was I at when I first went to a farmer's market, a really white city, that's the first time I'd ever been to a farmer's market. That's telling. Now there are plenty of amazing black farmers who are organic farmers. I mean, I, some of them wouldn't even call themselves that because, you know, what is really organic farming, it, it's defined in relation to conventional farming. So for a lot of, you know, black farmers, it's just about you know, sustaining communities and it's about, you know, building resilient, vibrant communities and those, that application actively resists, you know, this mega growth that we see in the conventional market, but that's not measured, right? We don't actually, because we don't care, right? I mean, like, here we are talking about Black Lives Matter. I mean, you could say Black farmers should matter too, particularly small-scale urban farmers that are doing this work, right? I, I, you know, commend their great work and I think it's amazing what they do, but they're not, they're not, they're not getting a large seat at the table to actually be, you know, the drivers of this change, right? They're just sort of, they're doing their thing, protecting their communities as the black community's always been under this like capitalist hellscape. So. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing that does, um, you know, excite me and give me hope is that I have been seeing kind of more movement around supporting black farmers. Um, and so I think, you know, in one way, I feel very optimistic um, about that. Um, but, you know, living in, <laughs> capitalistic racist society right that optimism is often you know tempered or tampered um but again you know support local farmers support your local black farmers um and then thinking about land land rights as well right so even i think just that little bit that we've talked about so far um leads me to ask you this question about just in general climate justice because mm -hmm. I've definitely heard about climate change and these keywords of like sustainability. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm really interested in this idea of climate justice, which might be new language for folks who are listening. So what is climate justice? Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, it, it's a big term. It, it, it encompasses a lot. So in general, like it's kind of based on this reality that those who contributed least to climate change are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's the that's the baseline definition. So you can imagine that has to do a lot has a lot to do with where people live and how land has been allocated to certain groups of people based on the historical and existing legacies of oppression. So where they're relegated, where they have to live in relation to others. So those who contribute most to the problem oftentimes also live in insulated spaces where they're not directly affected by climate change as it occurs even now, which is why we like why we can measure right. We know, for example those who tend to not believe in climate change are those who oftentimes are most insulated from its effects. Um, so that's one way of thinking of it. The way I've approached the question in my work is to say, okay, yes, that's true. So um, we know that as, as climate change unfolds, the most vulnerable populations uh, who've historically been marginalized under capitalism, but even through colonialism and all these things, patriarchy, all these things, we know these groups have, are most likely to be harmed by it. But I want to really understand the ways in which that's interconnected. What is that story is what I've been really interested in, which is how did certain groups of people end up in, in more vulnerable spaces such that their vulnerability actively contributes to the problem? Now, I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting that they are the problem because they're not. What I want to mean, what I mean by that is that it's their oppression. It's the continued oppression of these groups that is continues that keeps us perpetuating the problem that as we move forward, so we haven't really stopped contributing to climate change, right? Mm -hmm. We keep having these opportunities too, and we haven't. And that's because we continue to oppress. And that's the sort of story I've been really interested in my own work, which is like, how do we understand the ways in which these things are related? How do we continue to you know, emit fossil fuels um, in a way that actively exploits you know, black and brown people, uh, specifically uh, women, children, families, right? People living in the global South, how does this continue to happen? Mm, yes, big questions, but important questions. Let's jump into that more. But first, let's take a quick break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And here we are back on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Julius McGee. And we are talking about climate justice, something that I think should be on all of our minds and that already I've learned so much. <laughs> so before the break, you were just talking very briefly about how thinking about, you know, climate justice or maybe even climate injustice is linked to other forms of oppression and how those who are most vulnerable, as is the case in other forms of oppression, continue to be um, very much exponentially affected by all these other systems <laughs> of oppression um, and here thinking about the effects of climate change in particular. Uh, something that I found really intriguing about your work is um, this idea of energy poverty, which I think is very much related to thinking about these vulnerable populations, particularly if we wanna think about you know, within the US or even globally, but could you talk more about what energy poverty is? Mm -hmm. So it's first, it's based on the reality of our current living situations that we all uh, require energy to live in our day-to-day -day lives. And that hasn't always been the case, but that is the case for many of us. So there's a base level of energy that is necessary, that is required for people to live out their day-to-day -day lives, for cooking, cleaning, you know, staying warm, what have you. Um, and sort of, you know, fun fact, the most energy that people consume in their households, right? So through electricity, oftentimes is just the baseline things they need. So heating your home, 
keeping your food uh, stored properly and cleaning. That's most of the time, most of the energy you use. So it's not really about like this conversation using our computers or charging your phone. It really is just the basic things. Um, now, energy poverty is lo looks at people who are impoverished specifically due to their inability to even uh, acquire the basic, the baseline level of energy needs or energy to produce their needs. So if you're having limited access to energy for a variety of reasons, perhaps, you know, there's just rolling blackouts where you live, which, you know, through climate change, that's going to increasingly be the case. Or maybe there hasn't been enough energy infrastructural development to keep pace with the changing structure of the landscape under which you're living. So maybe you now have more energy requirement needs to cook your food and to stay warm based on where you're living, but the infrastructure hasn't been developed. The last sort of point of that too is perhaps the sort of changing dynamics of the energy structure like places we see in Texas, right? Because we see private interest coming in and uh, jacking up prices means that people are choosing between paying, keeping their lights on or you know, just not eating at all. So that's another whole group of people that we say live in energy poverty. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'm thinking about you know so many things as you were explaining the different ways we can think about energy poverty or different contributors. So I'm thinking about one this you know lack of infrastructure which we have been seeing being exposed you know even more and more even just this year right especially in thinking about some of the extreme weather we've had and how that has exposed you know lack or decaying infrastructure in a variety of places um, i'm thinking throughout mississippi but also texas right and then those exorbitant energy bills that we saw coming out of texas after you know those storms just what a month two months ago now at this point. Um, so thinking about who can even afford to maintain that basic energy needs, as you mentioned, just refrigeration, heating and cooling, which is becoming even more and more important with these extreme temperatures um, that we're all experiencing, even if we just think about across the US. Um, I never really thought about energy poverty, but obviously it makes so much sense. And even connecting it to what you said earlier about when we think about, you know, who is most vulnerable or thinking about where people live and who's living in, you know, concrete big cities and how that impacts our energy needs. And then, you know, in turn, affects folks who are in poverty, but also, you know, experiencing this energy poverty as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then what you, oh, sorry, but you're gonna have no, to go ahead. I mean, then what you find too, right? So because you have that baseline reality of energy poverty is what we find is that when we attempt to address climate change, and so this is kind of gets into the, the layers of complexity here, which I'll get to in a second, but just, you know, what I've found in my research is that as we implement new policies that are, you know, geared towards increasing the amount of renewable energy that we consume, we see that that exasperates energy poverty. Now, on the surface, that seems, you know, that just sucks, <laughs> just to put it lightly, um, that, you know, we, people, as we're trying to address climate change, we're causing the problem. But I think what's fascinating is why that ends up happening. And so that has a lot to do with how we, the way in which we've implemented these policies are still under the same mindset of growth. Now, this is not a homogenous reality, right? So look at some places, uh, you know, that are developing for the first time, like electrical grids, and they're relying on renewable energy. That is actually alleviating poverty. Right. You look at places in India or places in like, uh, you know, South, southwestern uh, Africa, so like Namibia, we look at those places, you know, increasing access to renewable energy infrastructure just simply means lifting people out of poverty. So more access to electricity where they otherwise didn't have it. Now, if you take a place, say, like the United States 
where you know there's a there's a grid for everyone. There was a huge infrastructural project over 100 years ago to create this reality, and now on top of that infrastructure, we're actively trying to combat climate change. How have we been doing that? We've been doing that as we usually do in the United States at the expense of poor people, specifically poor black and brown communities. So what that looks like is that uh, the incentives that are put forth to, in to encourage folks to say, put solar panels on their home. One of those incentives is that, you know, the, ex the excess energy that they produce, their homes produce gets put back into the grid, right? And then they get a paid for that. They get a rebate for the energy that gets put back into the grid that then is, you know, shipped off and sold to other groups. Uh, but the loss of, funds from say large fossil fuel pr producers. This is a little bit more, I'm oversimplifying this one to be clear, but uh, the, the way in which uh, the way in which those funds are recollected oftentimes is through sort of policy gymnastics that ultimately mean that poor people who can't afford uh, for a number of reasons to even put forth the cash to put say solar panels on their home in the first place are having to pay more for fossil fuel based energy because there's a less, there's a smaller market. Right, so to make sure they recuperate their losses, they are these poor groups are paying more. Like I said, like this is an oversimplification, but if you look at the details in the abstract, this is ultimately what you're seeing, right? Consistently across uh, not just the United States, but also in Western Europe, um, that as we see these policies being implemented, they exasperate people's people, the number of people living in energy poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important, you know, what you said. On on one hand, we do see how you know, implementing renewable energy in certain contexts can be helpful and, you know, alleviate poverty, right? But in other contexts like the U.S., switching to renewable energy, especially as individuals make that switch to renewable energy, we see this actually exacerbating inequality. So I think that's very important that it's not just this kind of one blanket statement on, okay, making this switch to renewable energy is good or is bad, right? But looking at the total conditions and context of wherever we're making these changes. Um, as I was reading some of your work, it really made me think, you know, again, I think all of us are kind of familiar with this idea of we want to um, like, uh, engage in these like energy saving techniques, right? So of course we're thinking about like, everything is like energy efficient, right? You wanna get your appliances and they need to be energy efficient or your light bulbs, or we wanna get more insulation for our homes. And, you know, we think about this again through this individual lens of like, I'm doing something good <laughs> for my own kind of bottom line, my own pocketbook, but also like helping climate change, decrease climate change. But in many cases we might actually Actually, be again contributing to inequality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and at its core, oh, at its core, some of those problems are kind of determined by you know the lack of community. As you said, it's the individualism. So, like the central, the core of a lot of my work, the framework I work under is you know I look at how it is that we continue this pace towards individualism that's antagonistic to all forms of communalism. And so when we start to try to say, um, reimagine, what we need to do is reimagine our electrical grid, which is to say, well, renewable energy offers us this ability to pool our resources, to have centralized batteries where then communities can come together and decide for themselves how they wanna allocate 
the, the resources they have, energy resources they have. I mean, this is like the first time, at least at some level, the first time in history that uh, species other than plants can actually harness the energy of the sun, they're, they're not through photosynthesis, meaning that we have endless sources of energy that we can then decide, okay, like what do we want to do with it? But what we're deciding is the, the same thing we've always decided. We get this all this resource that we go, well, who can we depress next? Who can we screw over you know, next time around? And that ends up being what we're seeing. And that's not done with any one individual's choice but it's built into the system that already pre-existed the new development of this renewable energy infrastructure. So it actually is not all that surprising when you look at it from that perspective. The whole energy grid was based on exploitation. So until we address the, the fundamentals of that, any attempts to correct that grid to say address climate change is just going to be based around the same flaw, which is that it's based around exploitation of people. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important what you just said here we continue to try to improve upon or make little upgrades but in fact all we're doing is maintaining a system of inequality at its core mm -hmm. so based on your expertise how likely do you think it is that we could reimagine and actually implement a different type of energy grid here in the U.S.? Um, I think it's I think it's possible. I think that part of the way that we have to do that is we have to kind of see beyond the I don't want to call them traditional avenues, but the avenues that we become accustomed to. And we have to really live in the reality of what this place is, like what the United States is. And like so when we're looking at how the United States contributes to climate change, I mean the that story really starts with the enslavement of Africans and the genocide of Native Americans. And that sounds so distant into the past, but really one, I mean, the part of my more recent research has been trying to trace this legacy. One can look at the continued expropriation of black and brown people on this continent and connect that to the problem that we see today that we call climate change, like these large scale oppressions. Just to give you an example of that, you know, prior to the Great Depression, uh, most people didn't have an electric refrigerator. The, re the reason why is because you had people who would go around and, you know, would trade in, you know, giant blocks of ice. There was a whole market for that. It was a very communal system, though. People would show up. You had your back alley that was made for these things where people would show up with giant blocks of ice and you would pay them and you would put that into your refrigerator. That was far cheaper than faulty electric refrigerators, right? Uh, what happened, though, was during the Great Depression, once you had extreme poverty sort of plague most cities in the United States, is that you had, like, like as always is the case when you see rises in poverty, where you see increased crime rates, a lack of trust, this sort of community was broken apart because there was a less, there's less amount of funds, to, like, you know, to protect themselves, right? This, we're talking about the Great Depression. Uh, and so in the wake of that, you know, the Roosevelt administration comes in with their New Deal policy, and they take and they, they sort of embed themselves with, you know, the interests of the day. So, you know, General Motors, you know, the electric the electrification project was meant to take what had initially been a communal structure in cities and then center it on corporations like General Motors or like um, or like General Electric, right? Like these big corporations in the United States that instead of relying on your neighbor to do something now, you can rely on a giant corporation to do these things for you. And that's again, what gets at the heart of this is like what led us here is that we are decreasingly reliant on our communities and more reliance on these large corporations. And so when you ask about what, if it's possible in the United States, my answer is yes, but we cannot look towards, you know, these giant corporations 
to fix this. I mean, I'll give you one example as to why, like look at Elon Musk, he's a great example. You know, Elon Musk is a very interesting human being. I'm sure I'd have a great conversation with him if I sat down and chatted with him one day. Uh, but he's also engaging in a lot of very problematic activity. Just one is his recent investments in Bitcoin, which scientists have projected that Bitcoin alone may put us over that two degrees Celsius mark for climate change. Because to get Bitcoin requires a lot of energy. It's called Bitcoin mining. I would just encourage your viewers to look into it themselves. And what you know, Elon Musk has essentially been able to do is take funds from cap and trade policies. So the carbon credits he gets from cap and trade policies, he's able to then use to invest in the growth of his industries. So one of his, one major mining industry that's based around Elon Musk's you know, development of renewable energy infrastructure, particularly Tesla cars, but all these large scale batteries, the lithium mining, which occurs mostly in South America. And he is expanding lithium mining in South America, which happens to be on indigenous land. And in addition to that, he's taking the money he's making from all of this, and he's investing it in Bitcoin, which counteracts any carbon dioxide emissions he would have reduced, right, by producing all these electric cars. And the problem there is not that electric cars aren't, aren't inherently a bad idea. It's just that you cannot rely on the market. Like this is why cap and trade was bound to fail from the start because it tried to present the problem that is a market problem with a market-based solution. And it's just never gonna work. Um, and I don't know when we'll learn our lesson, but once we do that, once we learn that lesson and we start thinking outside the box, I have some faith and hope. Yes, I'm always trying to keep the hope alive <laughs> that we can come up with, you know, more creative solutions, more just solutions, and then actually implement them. Because um, mm -hmm. I don't think we're sh necessarily short on the imagination for some of these things, uh, but the implementation is very different, especially when we're thinking about how much big corporations kind of rule the world. Um, mm -hmm. So it can be very difficult. Um, we're going to take another quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm joined by Dr. Julius McGee, an assistant professor at Portland State University in the Toulon School of Urban Studies and Planning and Black Studies. And we've been talking about climate justice and you know visions for a more just and equitable future as well. Um, and I wanted to um, get into some of your more recent work. Um, so thank one, you know, even before the break, you were talking about how, you know, just everything is continuously connected. If we think about, you know, our past as a nation, again, and just looking at the U.S. to, you know, even presently in this realm of climate change and climate justice. And I think one area of your more current work is, again, making that extension from the past to the present and thinking about mass incarceration and how it contributes to climate change. So again, when I was reading some of your work, it's like my mind is blown because so many things um, that are happening happening, like if we just stopped and thought about it, we would be like, wow, that really makes sense, you know, and really understanding again, how the past is always in the present. Um, so I'd love to hear more about your work on again, mass incarceration and how it's contributing to climate change. Yeah, so there's, I mean, the big thing is, you know, that you know, mass incarceration really starts, which is fascinating, interesting story there, it starts at the deindustrialization period. So the period that we look at the sort of decline of these massive industries in the United States. So, you know, Ford manufacturing plants, GM manufacturing plants get start getting shipped overseas to China, right? China starts taking the bulk of labor in like the United States, the productive labor starts going into China. And this 
that has a big impact on black communities in particular. So we can look at, you know, South Central Los Angeles used to have car manufacturing plants that resulted in a robust black middle class in the United States. Uh, but this was still a segregated middle class, right? So, you know, we had at this time, people thought this was the end of racism, but, you know, racism has proven you know, that it could stay along, stay, stay along for the ride. Um, and what happened is once these industries left, you had a large divestment of these communities that were still similarly barred from all the other sort of communal aspects in the area. This is where we get the, you know, this is the breeding ground for gangs that are now famous in the United States, like the Bloods and the Crips. Uh, so you have this vacuum, this void that's left. And, you know, what we also have is people resisting. People, this is what we call neoliberalism, this era of the 1970s. We see all this divestment and these changes occurring. So you see the folks that are actively resisting uh, neoliberalism become the targets of this emerging carceral state. Now, what's fascinating about that as well is that before the carceral state, we have the welfare state, which was what we did with people who were struggling in poverty due to no fault of their own, but because of the gaps and the holes in our capitalist system. But under the neoliberal era, rather than relegating funds, so siphoning funds away from the wealthy and putting into these welfare systems, we started saying, let's take those safety nets and just rework them and let's find a way to extract wealth from those communities. So we started this system we call mass incarceration. It starts first with the over surveillance of black communities. And then we start criminalizing activities that happen to be specific to uh, those who are actively resisting these, these changes. So people living uh, so people living in you know, predominantly black communities, but also other areas in the United States where it's just predominantly poor affected by this industrial divestment. And then like, you know, this becomes a mechanism to make money. And something we've sort of forgotten is that the era of mass incarceration is really unique. I mean, just since the 1980s, we built over a thousand prisons in the United States. And now this again is like, we're taking people who otherwise have homes, who live, who would have lived in homes, you know, single family homes or uh, multi-generational family homes and we're taking them out of those homes that have already been built that are already there and we're putting them into new structures to be built that are very large in fact right they were, they were very large in cement which requires a lot of fossil fuels and then on top of that now we create an entire market that's dedicated to just simply producing goods endless goods cheap goods for these people who are living in prisons uh, so that includes clothing that includes hygiene products that includes the food that they eat so that becomes in its own industry so now instead of having pre-existing markets provide for the population base like they always have. Now we have these new industries that are directly geared towards producing food for the, the emerging carceral state. So just to be clear, when I say the carceral state today in the United States, it's about 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. And that still doesn't really do it justice. That's at any given time at the end of the year. But as far as how many people rotate through that system, the number grows uh, substantially. I mean, we're talking about people on probation and parole, for example. We say that's mass incarceration. That's seven and a half million people in the United States. Uh, you know, a car, the, the, all the people in, incarcerated would be one of the largest cities in the United States. And these are people that have all these needs. Now, what's fascinating, again, is that we also have seen the changes in laws that have allowed for the uh, incorporation of incarcerated labor into pre-existing industries in the United States. So I always find it fascinating, you know, like some of our solar panels, for example, are being built in prisons by prisoners, what, you know. <laughs> so we're trying to address climate change by, you know, having prisoners build these things. And they're paid, bit, you know, next to nothing. Sometimes they're just paid in time off their salary. Sometimes they're paid less than a dollar a day. And they mostly produce, you know, uh, carbon intensive uh, goods. So for example, textiles, we'll see this happen at the state level in particular. So the state of California does this in my home state of Oregon as well, I believe, uh, does this as well, where, you know, there's a monopoly, prison production will have a monopoly on the production of textiles. Now in the United States, textiles is still the fourth largest contributor to carbon dioxide emissions. So when we're saying, you know, textiles 
they're talking about like most like you know University of California systems or California state systems a lot of their furniture in those dorm rooms are just built by prisoners right um McDonald's uniforms are built by prisoners black jackets for the military or military uniforms made by prisoners right Victoria's Secret had a scandal right because prisoners were selling their clothes. So prisoners produce a lot of labor, hidden labor in the United States. It's not oftentimes measured. Labor that is very carbon intensive. Now, while that labor isn't directly measured as labor in prisons, we do measure uh, the, the potential effect, industrial emissions associated with this. So part of my thought again was, I just thought I would prove that we would clearly see that as incarceration increases, the relationship between economic growth and carbon emissions would similarly increase. And I expected that to be like, like have a significant impact, right? When I say significant, it's just like basically saying, if we rolled the dice again, you know, and said, did this all over again the next year, there's a 95% chance that we would still see a significant connection between these things. But in addition to finding that increasing the percentage of the population that's incarcerated also increases the relationship between economic growth and emissions, it's also an independent association, meaning that as we shift the population more and more into prisons, we see a clear impact that that has on carbon dioxide emissions. Now, why is that? It's because this is this hidden, this is entire hidden industry. It's not hidden, it's really there. It's hidden, when I say hidden, I'm, you know, I've just spent a lot of time around white people. So it's hidden from white people, right? But my life has been affected by mass incarceration, you know, vastly. I have plenty of family members that have been incarcerated. I mean, this is, this has always been something that's always on my mind in my life, but I haven't ever found a way to incorporate it into the work that I do uh, until now. And I started to realize, yeah, we're talking about you know, building homes for two and a half million people, right? Building rotating homes, providing beds for these people who already have beds. Now you can, at best, you're just doubling up. At worst, you're taking people who otherwise wouldn't consume to this degree and you're coercing their consumption through state revenue. Not to mention, I haven't even mentioned, right? The private prison industry, which its whole model is based on creating a profit. And the way that it does that is by cutting corners and cost. And just for, again, for listeners on this, I think is. Interesting, you notice that the production, the cheaper the thing we're talking about, the oftentimes is the case is the larger the environmental impact. So mm -hmm. producing cheap things is really, you know, uh, might be like good for capitalism, but oftentimes what's good for capitalism is bad for the environment. So all these goods that are produced very cheaply have a tremendous impact on the environment, a measurable impact on the environment we see. Mm -hmm. oh, oh my goodness. I mean, again, I'm like, my mind is like blown when we think about you know, how we are committed to really these negative impacts on our emissions and obviously negative impacts as it relates to, you know, the climate as well, because prisons are going to continue to be built or immigration detention centers, right, which I could think of underneath kind of the same umbrella of these very large concrete structures um, that are detaining people, but also very much contributing to carbon emissions. Um, and since we are in, you know, a carceral state, you know, these are the commitments we've made to how we want to govern, if you want to say that, or control um, people in this country. Um, so thinking mm -hmm. about what those commitments on, again, to this carceral state mean for our commitments or lack of commitment for some sort of climate justice. Yeah. So, and then we also just look at the industries as well, like the probation and parole officers, you know, like that whole industry also consumes a heavy amount of fossil fuels that I haven't even gotten into, but that's work for the future. I want to just lay out there, but you're going to say something. I apologize. No, no. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think, again, just thinking very deeply about how, um, you know, all the different systems or institutions that we participate in our life 
are connected, you know, to one another, are connected to the various levels of oppression um, that folks are experiencing, and then also are connected to climate change, which I think can fall out of view for kind of, I guess, just your everyday person who's maybe not thinking about <laughs> um, climate change or issues of, of climate justice. And again, thinking about where folks may live, obviously these issues are maybe more or less on your mind, because I'm thinking again about how, you know, various cities, you know, on the, the coast are disappearing because of, you know, climate change. So I know it's very much on folks' minds in a way that it might not be on folks' minds here, you know, in Memphis. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, because you have all this great work really laying out how we're, we're really failing at <laughs> reducing our carbon emissions. Um, but I always like to think about solutions and not the individual solutions because we cannot change systemic problems, um, individual solution at a time. But what are you or what are maybe even if it's pieces of legislation or policy or what are things that listeners should be, you know, looking out for in terms of climate justice yeah first like that like I love that question and I, I appreciate that like that setup because I do, I do think you know I, I tend to, I make myself depressed doing all this work and I, yeah, I, I appreciate the alternative perspective there I mean the big thing like I keep getting back to this issue around like communalism and the best way to sort of resist these things is to you know not not let our future be controlled by the powers that be so let's imagine different futures and let's let that motivate how we operate today um, and so the one that I think a strong mechanism of control is controlling how we like how we perceive potential avenues toward change. So when we think we need to, you know, you know, pay for pay politicians or, you know, engage in nonprofit work in this way, it's not to say those things aren't going to have a, like a potentially positive impact. But the real bigger changes that are going to come are going to come from us finding new ways of connecting to each other. Um, so this gets back into like just even how I think about like patriarchy is a part of the, you know part of the problem, right? The way in which we have you know structured our households in particular, uh, they've been determined mostly by a sort of work contract that's very outdated now, where you're supposed to have one man who does the work who works for capital, and then that those funds are then used to produce reproduce the mechanisms of the family. I think we need to kind of flip that around and we need to relate like the real work of like living comes in what I call like reproductive labor, like the care work, caring for one another, building robust, resilient communities where we're all interconnected and interdependent. And so our labor that we do that is attached to a wage is just siphoning funds away from people that actively contribute to the problem and then finding unique ways to then take those, like take some of those resources and to put them back into healing. And when I think about healing too, I think like we gotta be thinking about like way off into the future, right? We're not gonna see like a lot of us alive today, we're not gonna see a world that has completely mitigated and addressed climate change. So these, these, these figures around like zero emissions, like while they do help for policy construction, that shouldn't be what we're necessarily thinking about is getting to zero emissions. What we need to think about is, well, how did we get into this mess? And the, we, the reason why we exponentially see, ex, see an exponential growth in carbon dioxide emissions is because carbon, so fossil fuels are actively used to oppress people, to exploit, ex, extract, late, extract surplus from capital, right? So we need to resist that and come up with alternative ways and also not think about things in absolutisms. And so we need to think about, well, what is good about energy and what is good about energy productive, ha production? How do we make it so that it works for us and so we don't work for it? Mm -hmm. I mean, we think about the dawn of the industrial revolution, right? The industrial revolution started with enslavement. 
right? It was, it was the cotton pickers in the United States who were then the United States was shipping cotton to Britain where that was being produced in textile and, and textile manufacturers in Britain using the steam engine. So the dawn of the industrial revolution has its roots in enslavement. So meaning we can look at even our use of fossil fuels as a way of maintaining a system of slavery or benefiting at the very least from a system of slavery. And so we saw resistance back then. We saw we saw Nat Turner's rebellion, right? We saw the German Coast Rebellion before that. Those were moments in which enslaved Africans in particular were actively resisting what people, what we see today, this climate crisis, the thing we call the climate crisis today before it really had tra transformed into what we see today, which is a problem that seems very, like it's even hard to wrap our heads around it, right? Because it's happening every single day, right? Climate change is real, we're confronting it. It's just hard for us to understand it. Um, anyway, hopefully somewhere in that was an answer to your question. I got a little lost there. <laughs> no, one thing that you said that stuck out to me, because I, I hear this, you know, kind of echoed over other folks that I've talked to, you know, and not talking about climate justice, but talking about a variety of different topics is, you know, our need to re recreate or reinvest in communities, in actually building communities, seeing ourselves as part of a community you know, building, you know, real connections with people in ways that for some of us, we have fallen away from over, you know, decades or however, you know, long you want to think about it. Um, and I think, you know, again, just remembering other folks talking about how the effects of the pandemic really reinforce this idea of like, we need people, we need communities, we need to care for one another. And that care work, as you talked about, cannot be outsourced to an institution or the state or a corporation, <laughs> um, because those things are entities that don't care. Yeah. Uh, so thinking about, you know, how can we create you know, more love and care and healing. But something you said earlier, I think really stuck out to me, which was that, you know, the lack of trust that people have felt throughout previous time periods, again, if we just want to think about the US and how that then led us to rely more on big corporations. And again, applying that to our, you know, present day, this, you know, lack of trust that again, causes us to want to invest in the carceral state, right? In this law and order, or for some of us, that is, you know, the, the default. Um, so again, thinking about how we can combat um, being fearful of one another and instead recognizing that we, you know, we need each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, would, I would add, you know, something I always think about um, is like, you know, I consider myself a prison abolitionist, which is like potentially a, a way to address these things. and. Um, <laughs> the way, you know, I, but I'm, I'm, an, I'm an, I try to be an abolitionist that really tries to think about a world where we get rid of mass incarceration. So this is the, the same pitfall we had with uh, slave, slavery abolition is that even the way we teach it historically, it's, it's really the abolition that existed in white America, even though the vast majority of abolitionists by virtue of being enslaved and not wanting to be enslaved, that major an abolitionist were black. We don't hear their narrative. We don't think about what the world looked like once you said, okay, you're not enslaved anymore. Now you have, now you're free, go live. And what that, what that meant. And so when I think about that and I attach it to what it means to be a prison abolition, noting that, you know, mass incarceration is contributing to climate change. I really want to start thinking about, okay, like we have 2.3 million people in prison. Fixing the, 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 the injustice and healing the wounds that have been inflicted on these people 
for like for some of them, you know, most of their entire lives, for at least a few years. I mean, you know, there's some statistics out there that say one year of prison is five years off your life. I mean, we need to heal that. That's enough work right there for a lot of people to take on and saying, okay, I'm going to maybe not be doing this job that, you know, where I'm, you know, like making tons of money. And instead I'm going to just care for bringing people back to a community and re and like, you know, and integrating them back into that community and learning from them, learning from what existed in that space and learning how we re resist that in the future, just engaging with that, like helping to build vibrant communities. Because what happened, you know, at the end, unfortunately what happened at the end of slavery, right, was that a lot of people turned their, they had the compromise of 1877, right? So a lot of the, the Northern uh, states turned their back on, on Blacks, right? And they said, okay, we're gonna go build a railroad, good luck. Uh, and we need to not do that this time around. We need to actually truly heal our, our past wounds. And that goes, I haven't mentioned this and I'm remiss if I'd be remiss if I didn't, with Native Americans as well. Like this is a wound that's been going on for hundreds of years. And we really need to sit down and say, okay, let's, let's have a conversation towards healing. What did we steal here? Like what is gone, what's been lost and how do we start to heal the planet? And I, I just would encourage people to look at, you know, a lot of Native American tribes have already been walking that path towards healing by reintroducing species that we thought long lost to ecosystems. That's the path towards healing. It's just listening, thinking about how we can start to do that on a larger level and not saying that we need to be the ones in charge, but just asking how can we help? How can we help fix problems that we've all benefited from in the first place? So like that becomes our duty now is to heal the wounds that we've benefited from. Okay, rant over. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love this. I love, you know, exactly what you said. You know, how can we help fix these problems that we've benefited from? And that is a big question, right? And one that takes time for us to actually listen in order to listen and to hear versus to try to just immediately jump into fixing, you know, fixing a problem. Um, you know, I think for listeners, you know, if you were looking for that easy answer of like, get your energy efficient appliances or, you know, those solar panels, you know, climate justice is much bigger, again, than just the individual actions we can take, because it is very much um, a function of all of us, of multiple systems, and also of histories of systems that have brought us to, you know, where we are today. So these are all, you know, big questions, more than can be solved in, you know, our time together this morning. But I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Julius McGee, for being here with us. I've learned so much. And now there's much more that now I have to like Google and learn about as we're thinking about climate justice. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoy talking with you. Thank you again to Dr. Julius McGee. I feel like I say this every weekend, but I have learned so much. You know, I'll be honest with you. You know, I you know know about this idea of climate change, but I've never given a lot of deep thought to climate justice. So today's conversation was so illuminating. It's definitely given me a lot to think about um, and a lot to consider as moving moving forward. And one thing that Dr. McGee said that I think is really sticking with me is just this need 
for us to continue to build, you know, communities of care, resilient communities, and to really build trust amongst one another. Um, and I think that has really been a theme over a lot of the interviews I've had, a lot of the Saturdays that, you know, you and I have spent together is thinking about how we can reimagine and reinvest in our communities, because indeed we do need each other. So for today's positive note, I just want to share with you this quote that says, climate change is about something deeper than justice. It's about solidarity, human solidarity. And this really gives me hope because I think that we can build more loving relationships with one another and we can have solidarity, not just in our own communities, but around the world as we're thinking about this planet, right? That we all share together. Y'all, this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Of course, you can always catch this show and all the other great programming we have on WYXR. And I just want to let you know that Let's Grab Coffee is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. I cannot wait for us to spend next Saturday together. Be back here at 9 a.m.